Welcome to another episode of the Rest and Recovery Podcast. In this episode, uh, this is a second one in a row now. This will be episode 31. Episode 30 also discussed this, but wearables. Um, been a growing health tech industry area. And uh, not only just the expansion of more devices out there, but the ability of these devices to be able to read more accurately rather than just directionally correct. Now, there is a scale in the devices, as you would suspect. Um, there's a variety of metrics that are associated with that, but some of the wearables out in the market are okay, but they're not great if you're making medical decisions for yourself but uh, or health decisions, anything related to that. So we dig into a little bit of that with Elias Arjan, the Senior Vice President at BioStrap and uh, the importance of having medical grade quality metrics devices to be able to accurately depict and understand your personal you know health journey i'll call it that you're getting good data to understand yourself there are baseline numbers that are used to assess the key metrics like heart rate heart rate variability spo2 but some of those are personalized that you cannot compare yourself to the macro environment so you have to get your own baseline which happens over time through the monitoring and biohacker or excuse me uh, biostrap has really taken an approach to align themselves with the medical community to work tightly with them using the technology for Uh, accurate readings such as the difference in red light and green light which we'll get into and um, just the overall importance of nocturnal data collection not just throughout the day but the most important is to really understand during your sleep cycle and uh, that couldn't align better than with the rest of recovery podcast so this is a an enlightening conversation really digs into some key metrics like heart rate variability as kind of the holy grail of it all and uh, again a variety of other topics so i think you'll get a ton out of this please remember rate review the episode share with anyone that could see value in this and i want to thank you for listening remember be rested be well hey before we jump into the episode i did want to mention that BioStrap is launching their new device, the BioStrap Evo, and it is launching in uh, deliverable come October, depending on when you're listening to this, October of 2020. So they're just releasing this new device. Check out the link in the show notes. Also, you can check out my website, therestandrecoverypodcast.com. We can also find a link. And uh, if you do want to check out their device. This is an affiliate link for me. It's uh, not going to break the bank, but it will help offset the cost of being able to put out information such as BioStrap and other health benefiting information. Thanks again for listening. Be rested, be well. Okay. Welcome to another episode of the Rest and Recovery Podcast. Uh, With me today is Senior Vice President of um, BioStrap, uh, Elias Arjan, uh, also creator of Biohackers Collective, a community focused on optimizing health, and um, an avid biohacker, as I understand. So, welcome. 
Yes. Uh, I wish I could claim that I created the Biohackers Collective. Actually, that was uh, James Cadwell, but I'm the organizer okay. of the LA chapter and I act as the executive director for the organization, which is scattered around the world, uh, you know, with little collectives of biohackers around. Awesome. So how'd you um, get into biohacking? I mean, I always say that I was a lifelong biohacker, you know, like I, uh, before the term existed, um, for me, ideally what happened was I, um, I was involved in, I was a personal trainer, uh, in college and I was a, a triathlete. And so what happened was, is I just started to test uh, myself, like what were the things that I could use to optimize my athletic performance and then I had a bunch of clients that were kind of depending on me. They'd be like, is this protocol good? Is this program good? What's the best nutritional uh, supplements? You know, these sorts of things. And back then, you know, this is over 20 years ago, um, it was a pretty cookie cutter approach to fitness, right? Sure. Like, you yeah. know, there would have been like three options, right? Like you had three programs as a personal trainer, you know, fat loss, uh, muscle gain, and maintaining. And that was it. Like yeah. we didn't, we didn't, biohacking didn't really, you know, get into the N equals one type of stuff back then. It was just like, this is the program for everyone. A lot of people were still following things like the food pyramid. We kind of just didn't know any better. Right. Um, and I guess for me, what happened is I started to notice things like I would give the same program to five different people and they would all have different results. Right. And I would start wondering, why is that? Like, I, I'm doing the same thing as a trainer. I'm giving them the same type of nutritional advice. I'm, I'm training them the same amount of time. And they're all having wildly different outcomes. And that kind of led me down the path of trying to understand why, uh, which has been a, you know, a 20-some-year-plus journey. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's a never-ending journey, too, as I'm finding out is, you know, we change – our physiology changes over time. And so there's the constant tweaking that you're going to have to do within yourself. Um, and I guess there's always new things to tinker with and try out and go down the rabbit hole with. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're right. And I actually think biohacking even change changes kind of by, I, I wouldn't even say by decade. I think you need to kind of break it into like life stages in some other way, but yeah, it definitely is different depending on where you are in your life cycle, you know, um, you know, a lot of the top biohackers that I see are still in their 20s and 30s. And I just think, ha you guys think you're, you know, you think you're biohacking? G give yeah. it 10 or 20 years, you know, yeah. 30 years. <laughs> see how much of a, of a, of a kick-ass biohacker you are then. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you, uh, especially, you know, I don't know about you, but uh, post-kids or in the midst of kids and sleep deprivation or whatever's driving the, uh, the change in life uh, dynamics plus aging. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're solo, you know, when you're a 20 year old, sort of just living your life and you got all this energy and you sleep and all these other things, you know, it's easy to claim like I'm totally optimized, you know? And then, you know, I, like I said, I, I've even seen some of that in some of the forums or even on Instagram, people commenting, you know, uh, in their forties or fifties, you know, saying, yeah, try biohacking, you know, my life, you know, in that sense. So I think, um, I think there there should be a bit more realism in biohacking personally uh, in, in that sense. Um, but, you know, I feel like it's it's still a great space to be in. I mean, I love it. I love the idea of it. Uh, I, I even love the term because it, it suggests something that is uh, maybe even a little subversive. And I think in a society where, you know, we have almost 60% of the population unhealthy, 
we yeah. kind of need to subvert the system, right? So like you need to hack the system because the system is not your friend if that's, if that's the norm. Yeah, because the one size or as your example earlier, three sizes doesn't fit all, um, you know, and right. you, you can't, um, we're all, I've always said, we're all walking chemistry sets. Um, mm-hmm. And so you just have, you have different genetics, you have different backgrounds, you have different responses, uh, even geographies and the food you eat are going to affect you differently um, yeah. based on the region and et cetera. So it's definitely yeah. um, an evolutionary thing. And it, it, it's kind of encouraging that it's getting a broader na- ter- or awareness, I should say. Yeah. And I, I mean, that's the other thing that's really interesting. People don't even think about some of the things. So you have, you know, you have the genetics, you have the epigenetics, you have the geography, you have the psychometrics, which is I'm also a psychometrician in my professional life, which people don't even talk about in the biohacking space. I was going to say, is, what, what is that? That's the psychology. That's your okay. individual psychology uh, quantified. Mm-hmm. So it's a quantification of your psychological man, basically. And so, you know, so the same protocol, even if you had all these other factors, similar genetics, similar geography, but similar different attitudes, you might have different outcomes. Yeah. People people don't even think about that in the biohacking space. It's a little so biologically orientated, uh, you know, and then you have the people talk about the psychology of, you know, uh, you know, epigenetic expression, but that opens up a whole nother can of worms. I think a lot of biohackers don't want to go there. So they just kind of like ignore it, you know, because yeah. it's easier to ignore it because you open that up. Then all of a sudden you're just in this whole thing around, you know, what is thought, what is consciousness, the spirituality impact, what we do as biohackers. I mean, it really becomes a, a, a quagmire when you open that, but, but I think we can't ignore it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Probably cause it's not as easily measurable, but, uh, you go into the headspace and we're still so, um, you know, it's still the gray matter, right? That there's a lot of unknowns when it comes to the mind and how it responds, it seems, at least what from my seat. Um, so you're starting at biohacking. So how did you get to the point of being at BioStrap? So it was actually really interesting. It was, you know, I was, I moved to LA, uh, I guess around three years ago, moved to Southern California and I was just looking to kind of, you know, meet people, uh, not knowing anyone down here initially came here for work. Um, and I said, you know, maybe I'm going to go start a biohacking group. I mean, I was getting more the, the term was starting to kind of have more traction. And so I was like, okay, maybe I can start a group. And I went and looked and there was already uh, a group on meetup here in LA, um, from the biohackers collective. So I reached out to them and I said, Hey, you know, you doesn't like anyone's managing this LA chapter and uh, I'd be willing to help rather than start my own. So I joined in, um, started producing events, and I guess in around March of 2019, we hosted an event with uh, uh, Samir Santike, who's the CEO of Bastrap, and uh, the two co-founders of Apollo Neuroscience, okay. uh, Catherine and um, David. Um, and so it was all about HRV. And I just love, it was probably one of our best events to date at the time. And, uh, and then I also love the idea that uh, the Apollo product hadn't been released yet. They were kind of sharing uh, the future of it. But Biostrap was on the market, and I was thinking as a biohacker, this is exactly what I need to self-quantify, you know, to conduct my own N equals one experiments. Yeah. Um, and so I was immediately interested in what they were doing. Um, and then I, I one thing led to another. We just sort of started talking. Um, and 
you know, several months later, I accepted the role as senior vice president. So, and I've been with the company, uh, I guess it will be a year come September. Okay. Awesome. Well, it sounds like a fun journey. Um, so you mentioned it was right in your sweet spot of your areas of interest and being able to quantify yourself. So maybe we can break down Biostrap and how, um, maybe it's a little different than some of the things in the market based on my research and reviewing it compared to some of the other wearables out there, which seems to be a growing market, um, mm-hmm. exploding market, really. Um, you know, kind of the differentiating factors around Biostrap and, and the metrics that it measures. Yeah, I mean, not to, I guess, you know, obviously I'm somewhat biased, I guess you could say, sure. but I think ultimately if you're a biohacker, I mean, Biostrap's really kind of just an ultimate device. It's not for everyone, to be quite honest, like a lot of general consumers who don't want to get that deep into data analysis, probably not for them. I mean, they're better off, you know, sticking with their Fitbit, you know, or their Apple watch because they don't want to go that deep into data analysis. But if you're a biohacker and you want to really dial in, you know, exactly what is the right dose of that CBD to, you know, impact my deep sleep and raise my HRV, you know, consistently by, you know, 20%. Right. You know, Biostrap really allows you to conduct that level of self-experimentation that you can use almost like a, your own, you know, N equals one clinical trial, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and for anyone listening who doesn't understand how you do that, one of the important things to understand is that you can't take 10 supplements at once and, and quantify what they're doing to you, which is one of the biggest things I encounter in biohacking. I, a yeah. lot of people are like, you know, Oh, what are you taking? Oh, I take this for sleep and that for sleep and this to wake up. And I'm like, well, is it working? And they're like, I think so. And it becomes this like subjective unknown. And, yeah. and, and what I think is fascinating is people will spend $400 a month on supplements and not know if any of them are working. They've yeah. never done a single test. Yeah. Yeah. And I can, I can say I've been guilty to, to that point where you're, you're searching around for the different things. And you, you honestly, you probably start getting into the like, FOMO method of fear of missing out or just whatever right. the next new shiny thing is, is like something pops up in your feed and you're like, Ooh, maybe that'll help. Even yeah. I'm like halfway through the last bottle of <laughs> the other thing and you haven't even figured out if that's working yet. Right. Exactly. And, and even if you are thinking it's working or not working, I mean, are you just relying on subjective data? Like, does it, I think I feel better. Unfortunately, the mind is really good. Being a psychometrician, I can tell you that one of the most powerful things that in, in our reality is our, is our mind. So if you, that's the whole placebo, nocebo effect, right? If you think this thing isn't going to work, it won't work. If you think it is going to work, it is going to work. So you can self-report from a subjective, from a subjective aspect, whatever you want it to be. Right. So you could, you could be driving yourself to have better sleep, taking a sugar pill, believing that it's going to make you sleep better. I mean, that's a pretty amazing thing, right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, what I like to do is find things that, that I, I try to neutralize that by doing my own experiments with Biostrap, you know? So it's like, I can take the supplement and then I can see exactly, does it affect my metrics at a, at a neurophysiological level? So how is it that it's able to get more data, um, on it, I did notice. Well, I, I'm kind of answer half answer my own question, but notice that you have multiple units. Where a lot of times the Fitbit, it's just the one unit, 
or components where you have like the foot pod and the, the wrist and the chest strap and things of that nature? Yeah, there's the, I mean, yeah, there's multiple devices, but it's more even just about the way the data collection is done. Uh, one of the things that's really interesting that a lot of people may not realize is that the science is behind nocturnal data collection uh, is being a better um, way to understand our own neurophysiology than uh, continuous data collection. So for example, a lot of people are really attached to this idea that, you know, they just hit the button on their Fitbit or Apple watch and they go, Oh, look, my heart rate is at 94 beats per minute right now. So what does that mean? It's, it's 2 PM on a Wednesday and you're at 94 beats per minute. What does that mean? You know what that means? Nothing. It means absolutely nothing. There's, it, it just means it's a snapshot in time without context and without uh, looking at trends and variation, mm-hmm. it means nothing. Yeah. What the only two t- times that your biometrics really provide the most uh, insightful understanding is nocturnally and during activity and immediately post activity, right? So you know how fat. So nocturnally, when you're sleeping, um, if your biometrics are changing while you're sleeping good or bad, that is indicative of many different things, you know, depending on what's going on. I mean, it, right now in this sort of COVID era, you know, we're involved in some research because you could be, you could be showing signs of developing some type of, uh, we can't identify COVID, but we could talk about a respiratory condition mm-hmm. because there's things changing in your biometrics and that shows up days before you would have symptoms. So that's when you're pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic. So by the time you actually are sick, uh, it's kind of too late, uh, and especially in terms of right now, everyone's worried about spreading this. Um, but your biometrics will change at night, you know, and that is more indicative of a transformation than temperature because you could just be running, you could be coming in. From, I mean, you know, it's 100 degrees here in California, Southern California right now. You come in from outside, you know, I scan 101. Well, maybe I was running to the get right. into the hotel because I was hot, you know, and then the door will slam in my face and won't let me in, you know? Um, and also too, some people run cold, some people run hot. Right. So we don't even talk about that. The fact that the variation of temperature is actually quite wide. Women's temperature, you know, changes with ovulation cycles, mm-hmm. all of these things, you know? So really all that matters is trends over time relative to your own baseline. Comparing yourself to a general population is not, you know, is, is maybe going to give you some insights, you know, a lot of people are competitive. So it's like, oh, I want to be in the top, you know, 15 right. percentile, yeah. you know, my resting heart rate is better than your resting heart rate. You know, uh, my HRV is higher than your HRV. Well, some people just maybe their baseline HRV is below the norm, but they could be incredibly resilient. You know, um, it's just, you know, a factor of the way their neurophysiology is wired. So you can't yeah. always look at these, and HRV is definitely one of the most important metrics, but also one of the most is- misunderstood and probably the most difficult to quantify as well. Yeah. And, and honestly, you're speaking my language right now is because I've been using a device that's tracking all of that and I'm trying to make sense of it to include heart rate variability. And I, I, don't, I don't know how many times I've reread the definition, read articles, right. and I'm still scratching my head like, okay, it's like the most important thing, but it's like this squishy thing that keeps slipping all over the place. I just don't even understand. 
Yeah. Cause there's, there's, you know, there's all these things you, you, once you go down that rabbit hole, you start looking in low frequency versus high frequency versus very low frequency. And then you start to see really weird things. Uh, and I'll give you a real life example, uh, of something I encounter, you know, with us as a company is, um, yeah, somebody who was admitted to ER and their HRV shot over a hundred. And this is somebody who said their HRV had never gone over like 45. And so they were in a crisis and the way their body reacted at that particular moment for that particular individual was they put them in a profound parasympathetic state to deal with the crisis. So you would think, you know, if, if HRV was a A equals B scenario, you would say, oh, this person is incredibly sick and their HRV is going to drop down, right. but it actually went higher than it had ever gone. Wow. And that was their body's way of kind of protecting them. Their fight or flight reaction was actually to create a high level of parasympathetic activation to deal with the situation. Wow. Fascinating. You know, to show you, you know, like we were saying, you know, each individual is different and how we're going to respond to things. Yeah. So, so that, and again, I mean, heard of other cases of this and, and I've talked to physicians cause I work with a lot of physicians as part of what we do. Uh, and, and that's not entirely uncommon. They, they will see sometimes in people admit into the ER where their HRV is, is shooting up to deal with crisis, right? So what we would think fight or flight HRV drops, you know, if we're going to flight, you know, going to fight or flight, not always the case. So that's where it becomes, like I said, a very confusing metric where you can't always say, you know, high is good, low is bad, uh, high is high is better and, and low is worse. You know, it, 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 it could mean a lot of different things. You need context. You need to look at the individual. You need, you know, a, a lot of extra data points. So what are some, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a 101 version, HRV defined? What are the, the components that kind of aggregate up to give you that number? Okay, yeah. For anyone who's not familiar with this, it's a very important metric that, that we couldn't measure through wearables previously. Um, but it's basically all of all humans, and this is not something that's unique to any individual, all humans have what's called an autonomic nervous system. Uh, and the autonomic nervous system is broken down into the sympathetic and parasympathetic. So sympathetic is the fight or flight. So when we go into a sympathetic state uh our our we get um you know our body gets ready for fight or flight so we get ready to face a enemy or a threat of some kind so you know we have things where extra blood gets directed to our muscles uh the the digestion uh blood to the digestion uh digestive organs will slow down significantly so that it is able to be ready for the extremities in case you need to run or fight for example um and a lot of other things happen uh, to sort of activate the body, body. You know, you might get some rushes of adrenaline. So the body's in a state of, of readiness. And the opposite, uh, when you go into a parasympathetic state, which is rest and digest, is uh, when, and, and sorry, fight or flight, your HRV tends to drop. So low HRV means fight or flight. Uh, and then the alternate side is the, is parasympathetic activation, and that's the rest and digest, where the blood goes from the extremities to the digestion to digest your food. Uh, your your muscles and your overall state should go into uh, relaxation, uh, and you should feel safe and calm, and your breathing would slow, uh, and and the the HRV would go up. 
Um, so the interesting thing is that we live in this world where we're always on. So, you know, even when you, so, so if you think about it in the past, even just looking at a very real scenario, you finished work at five, you went home, there was no cell phone, there was no laptops, there was, nobody was bothering you at work, for example, and you could go into a deep state of rest and digest. You would eat your dinner with your family, you'd chill out on the couch and you'd go to bed. Well, now what happens? You leave the office or now we're not even going to offices. We're at home all the time, working all the time. Yeah, you go up and down the stairs, if that, or in and out of another room. And uh, this, you never actually get to a good state of parasympathetic activation, which would put you in a state of readiness to go to sleep. And so sleep disorders are just rampant right now in, in, in our society. And that leads to all these other health problems, obesity, uh, type 2 diabetes is also, you know, insulin resistance is tied to sleep. Um, you know, you're not producing uh, hormonal balance unless you're getting uh, good, you know, enough sleep at night. Um, also, even cognitively, if you don't get enough REM sleep, you know, you're just going to probably be, you know, a little bit cognitively uh, brain fogged or just even unhappy angry or cranky, you know. So yeah. it all it all fits together. It's It's a complex puzzle. Uh, and HRV is probably one of the best metrics we have to look at where you are in in that cycle. And so that's why monitoring HRV matters. Awesome. Sorry, that was an extremely long answer. <laughs> no, no, it, it, it's a great explanation of it. Um, it's very helpful. It certainly is for me anyhow. Um, so what other areas uh, within the BioStrap are being monitored you have HRV, so you, the resting heart rate, I presume, is another element of this. Yeah. So uh, the, the the four key biomark uh, biometrics or monitoring is uh, heart rate, right? It's specifically resting heart rate nocturnally, um, which is you know been a long time indicator of athletic fitness, right? So you know athletes are often you know, almost even competitive about who has the lowest resting heart rate, you know, because that just means the heart is well-trained. It needs to pump less to get blood to the, to the body uh, at rest because it's so well-trained and so well-developed as a, as a muscle. Um, so resting heart rate, um, heart rate variability, which we just explained, uh, respiration rate, um, you know, so how, how rapidly you're breathing uh, while you're sleeping. Uh, and then one of the things we do, it's different than most other wearables, uh, is the SpO2. So the, the blood oxygen saturation on the wrist, um, which is a, can be, it from most people is not, most people are, you know, between 96 and 99%. Uh, if you have sleep apnea or any other type of respiratory conditions, though, um, this metric can fluctuate more. And, and so a lot of people need to know what that is. Right. Yeah. I did notice that, that it was interesting that you, um, were able to monitor that. Um, how accurate is that? Cause you know, historically when you get those little ones that you put on your finger, uh, from, from, you know, CVS or wherever, um, those are the measurements on your finger. So it, it, it's able to do it off the wrist. Yeah, yeah. We uh, the way the sensor has been set up on the wrist, we're actually taking the measurement directly from the artery uh, because we're using an IR or and red light sensor. So it's actually shooting all the way uh, into the wrist, just in the same way a pulse ox does it off your finger. Um, so the 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 uh, we, we've actually been clinically validated. Our four key biometrics have been done by 
um, no less than Massachusetts General with Harvard Medical School and the San Jose State University Biomedical uh, Engineering Lab have validated the metrics uh, that we use. So okay. we do, we, we can claim, uh, as we often do, you know, clinical validity in terms of what we're doing, um, which a lot of people don't even realize that most wearables actually don't do that. Most consumer wearables, you know, you have FDA cleared clinical and medical devices that have gone undergone validation, but there's no requirement uh, that requires your Fitbit to be accurate. And people don't realize that. So anybody could release a wearable. There's a lot. The right now the market's being flooded with cheap wearables, and people are making health decisions with them. And you know, again, I don't want to sound biased, but just even as a as a health practitioner of any kind, that disturbs me. Just because yeah. I don't want somebody to decide what supplement to take or what exercise program off of a you know completely inaccurate wearable. I mean, you're just bad data is going to lead to bad outcomes. Yeah. A hundred percent. When, especially when, like you're saying, you're dealing with your health and uh, that's just an example of maybe good intentions misapplied. Yeah. Relying yeah. And on- you think even now, like, you know, people because of buying temperature, you know, sensors and pulse oxes and making very major health decisions around these. And, you know, again, there's no requirement for any of these to be valid. There's no requirement that says you have to sell an accurate pulse ox. You have to sell an accurate temperature sensor. You know, you can just buy them on Amazon or wherever, Alibaba, and, you know, God knows what you're getting. Yeah, that's that's kind of amazing that that's the case, uh, that it's not more stringent when it comes to certain devices like that. Yeah. I mean, if you if you want to be a FDA cleared device or a clinically validated device, I mean, there's some wearable companies that have put in the time and effort like us. We're not the only one sure. um, to, to be clinically validated. But, you know, we're one of the few, to be quite honest. You know, there's there's not a lot of people doing that. Uh, even some of the big names, you know, Apple Watch has clinically validated its ECG, but hasn't validated anything else as of yet. Um, so, and, and they're Apple, I mean, the biggest company in the world, right? So, right. you know, it's, it's not easy to do this stuff. Yeah, there's considerable investment, not that I know the, the degree, but I, I'm sure when it comes to that, I've been involved with some other devices that, you know, took a while for FDA clearance and, uh, you just got to go through the, the process and, uh, before you can kind of release it. But once you get there, I presume it's, you know, it's something to be uh, proud of. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's on our timeline where it's on our, our path. We are working towards achieving that ourselves because uh, it just seems to be, it's just very important. If you're going to be trying to help people make health claims, you know, you just, well, we're continually working to validate our metrics uh, to do more clinical studies, uh, to improve our algorithms, to improve our sensors, um, and, and just really, you know, provide a, a high quality product and, and good data to people, you know, because if you make, I think it's essential. So, uh, what makes the BioStrap different? You mentioned red light. So, uh, I know for others that you often see green light. So yes. what's the difference between the two and why is that important? Well, uh, so this is a really, this is a very interesting conversation that probably anyone outside of the wearable market uh, space doesn't even know. Um, but there's different ways to do biometric uh, extraction to get the biometrics from human body. And green light sensors are great. We use green light 
sensors in our heart rate monitors, our external heart rate monitors that we ingest that data, because we need that if someone's working out, running, moving, very active. So green light is much more effective uh, when you're moving. It, it, it gets uh, good data to some degree, but it also has its limitations, meaning that your uh, data integrity can slightly be reduced. It's less sensitive to light movement. And a lot of people don't even know this. Uh, it's also uh, less accurate the darker the skin and the more freckles, hair, or tattoos that you have. So if you have someone who has extremely dark skin or tattoos around their arm and they're using a green light-based um, sensor, their data quality is going to be significantly reduced. Really? Yeah. This is a complete unknown. There's even an article, people can go look it up, is your Fitbit racist? So if you have extremely dark skin, uh, you actually are going to get much lower data quality. And given what's going on in the world right now, then this is a really big issue because we're finding out that green light sensor uh, wearables, uh, to a certain degree, you could almost say there, there's, there's an element of that uh, danger in there and using them. Wow. For certain populations. And again, no people don't know this. Um, so that's the trade-off. So the red light, the green light's good uh, for making these measurements, but it has limitations. Uh, and most of the FDA-cleared medical-grade devices tend to use red light to avoid this problem and to improve the data quality and the data integrity. The trade-off there is re red light is sensitive to movement and light. So you have to be relatively still. That's why we focus on nocturnal biometric collection, um, because the red light is going to do a very good job of getting your data while you're sleeping and you're relatively still and in the dark. Uh, but if you were running in the sunshine up a hill using our main biosensor, we're probably not going to get enough data. That's why we also have secondary devices. Like the, the chest strap and the... And the shoe pod. Shoe pod. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, so like if you're running up the mountain and you're wearing the shoe pod and you turn on the activity feature, we can look at the cadence of your run and your steps, and we can get a very good count of that. If you're cycling, we can see the revolutions uh, of your cycle of your bike off of a shoe pod and the cadence of how fast you're revolving. Okay. So it's a it's another way to get that data point, you know, because even if you're doing arm sways off the wrist for steps it's not going to be that accurate. But if it's right on your foot or on your ankle, you're probably going to get better, uh, you know, accuracy of data. So for us, it's all around, you know, how can we get the most accurate data possible? Yeah, that's awesome. No, that's, um, I had no idea on the difference in light in the pros and cons to it, but it makes sense why green was probably more prevalent and could be used across it's also honestly it's a it's also less expensive sensor yeah i was gonna ask is it cheaper <laughs> it's cheaper so you can mass produce green light sensors and so most again that's one of the things so the market is being flooded with these green light sensors it's just like even for biohackers in the biohacking space the same thing with like you know red light devices right you have the name brands producing red light and then you have just you know the, this factory is just mass producing the same products but you know, some of them aren't, there's, there's no requirement for those other red light devices to have low EMFs or to have uh, even, you know, good quality, uh, you know, light devices. So it's the same thing. Like a lot of these green light wearables are just being mass produced, thrown onto the market. And, you know, 
and it's a lot less expensive to produce. Red light is hard to work with. That's why it tends to be a medical grade device when you're using red light. That makes sense. So you mentioned um, kind of the quality and and around the device. So when it comes to um, the metrics and what you're capturing on, you know, say my profile uh, around data privacy aspects, do you guys take that into account because you are dealing with, you know, medical information um, and how that is managed? I know it's a big thing right now. Yeah, it is. In fact, actually, we are currently uh, been working on developing because uh, we are involved in some clinical trials. So we kind of have had to already sort of de facto uh, have things that are like HIPAA compliant, where you don't even see who the individual is. It's like a long form kind of like blockchain type of, you know, 10 to 10 plus digit number that is identified with the person. Um, so we are extremely careful with that. One of the other things to keep in mind um, I don't know if you even heard this story. I mean, the Department of Defense stopped using Fitbit because they were getting hacked and you could track troop movements through their Fitbits. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah. So we don't even have a GPS in our device. So we use a GPS on the phone, but it's not embedded in our device. So if you decide to record something uh, and your phone is not nearby using the onboard memory, we have no idea where you are. We can't track your movements. We don't track your GPS unless unless you tell us you want us to because you're working out and you want us to track your run or your cycle. Through and that's we'll through track you, and that's through the app. That's through your phone. That's not even in the device. Right. So we have no GPS tracking. We have no you know essentially no tracking functionality of any kind. Um, and you know obviously I'm sure you can't say that of Apple and Google. Uh, you know, uh, in terms of how they're doing things. Right. So, right. Yeah, definitely not. Take uh, that and take take all of that into uh, you know your thoughts as you think about what wearable you want to have. Remember, we all we thought you know Facebook and Google were free. They're not. Yeah. They're not free. We've just become the product. Exactly. Yeah, that's a rabbit hole for another day. Uh, <laughs> well, um, no, that's encouraging to know because that's one thing that you know weighs on my mind even as I try things and I've used you know some of the the originators of of wearables like Garmin. Uh, for a long time, I'm a runner, and and so I've always used that. Um, but it's important to know that you know some of that stuff isn't ending up like some of the search engines and things of that nature out there. Yeah, yeah. So we, I mean, Garmin is great because if you really want that good GPS functionality, I mean, it's great. It's built yeah. into the wearable, right? right? And so you know that's the thing. We're not trying to be Garmin. We're not trying to be Fitbit. I mean, sure. that's the other thing. We get compared to them, but we're actually trying to do something different. We're trying to give you a high quality of data analysis that is clinical or, or as close to medical grade as you can get with a consumer device to empower you, your fitness trainer, your physician, your healthcare partners to improve your health. Mm-hmm. We don't have GPS functionality. We will never sell user data. Um, we do invite people to sometimes even participate in sort of clinical research uh, if they want to, but it's always an opt-in decision. Um, you know, we did a whole study when COVID happened. We invited our users if they wanted to share their, uh, you know, data anonymously for the purposes of better understanding how this, uh, you know, disease was impacting their biometrics. They could opt in. But, you know, we're not doing that unless we get explicit permission. Um, we're very careful about that. And that actually is very important to me and and 
basically everyone in the company. We take that, um, you know, trust of having people's biometric data very seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Trust. Well, that's a key word, right? Cause I think that's a, a word that's been, uh, fractured in a few pieces in, in many domains of life right now. So, um, that's encouraging to know. And, uh, especially as, as a user of, of a couple different devices. So, um, how long is kind of the lifespan of a device? Have we gotten there yet or high-ending lifespan? I would say that's probably true of any of the wearables in the space. Um, I mean, we actually do have some users that I've just been amazed with Biostrap uh, who have purchased, you know, one of the very early devices and they're still using it every night. And it's like, I think almost three years old um, mm-hmm. and they're happy with it. Um, you know, I can't make that promise that's going to happen for everyone. I mean, you know, probably just like anything else. I mean, you know, some people have a car that's two years old and it's trashed, you know, and some yep. people have a car that's two years old and looks brand new. Yep. So, you know, it kind of is also up to what the user does with it. Sure. Um, you know, so the life cycle, I mean, we do have a one-year warranty on the major, on our main device. Awesome. So we're, we're, we, we do our best to, um, you know, and we do honor that quite, uh, regularly if anyone does have issues. Yeah. Um, Elias, we're kind of coming up on time. I'm super grateful for the conversation. It was really helpful to understand how y'all are doing it differently, the importance of the data uh, and where, where kind of the industry is kind of going and being able to really help individuals understand themselves better. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's really, really cool. Um, before I close out though, I wanted to ask a few questions, personal questions, if you don't mind. Okay. So what are you reading right now? Uh, actually it's funny. The book's actually right behind you. Uh, I am one of the books I'm reading. Cause I usually have a couple on the go at once is a boundless okay. by Ben Greenfield. I was at his book launch here when it was in LA, one of the oh, last cool. times we could still be here in person. Yeah. Uh, and so that was done, uh, in partnership with next health, which, uh, you know, great, great uh, group of people down here in LA. So that's something I'm going through because I'm actually kind of been working on some of my own sort of biohacking protocols just by popular demand people are asking me for more information these days so i'm looking at you know ben has put something pretty amazing together there um i also i do a lot of audible so does that count is yeah, it uh, does, part of what I it does for me I, if it wasn't yeah. for audible i don't know if i'd be reading a lot of books so uh i mean i guess i i finished this book but i want to give it a shout out uh that i think every biohacker or any person concerned about their health should read is something called the hacking of the american mind i think that is a must read book it should almost be forced on you know every teenager before they graduate high school they have to read that book and it talks about how our culture has been sort of subverted um into a dopamine dependent society uh, you know, in the relationship between, uh, you know, dopamine and serotonin and how it's completely changed our brains and society. So I would definitely want to give that book a shout out. Okay. I will look into that myself and on audible. Um, what are you listening to right now, whether it be music or podcast? Uh, podcasts. Um, actually <laughs> one of the ones that I listen to that, um, is maybe a little bit different than some people is something I listen to something called the skeptics guide to the galaxy. Um, although maybe a little, uh, outside the typical biohacking realm. Um, I'm, I'm pretty more on the hardcore science side of the biohacker. And so I feel like a lot of biohacking, um, you know, does go into a little bit of the fluff and, and it's very pseudoscience. 
So I like listening to what the skeptical and the hardcore science people are saying sometimes. Uh, I do lean that way a little bit myself in the way I think about things. Don't always agree with them completely. Um, but I like this group because they kind of also make it quite fun. And they actually have a, a great uh, the book. Uh, they also have a book as well as a podcast that I've been enjoying. Awesome. Um, what is your go-to rest and recovery method? Uh, oh, geez. I mean, for me, that's a long list. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of different things I do. Uh, one of the things I love right now that I'm using very regularly, uh, we also are doing, a, I guess, you know, I don't know when this is going to air, but we're, we, we're doing a uh, partnership with them is with uh, Theragun. Uh, so the percussive therapy, um, doing that, uh, is really, uh, we're going to be releasing actually a, a study that we did with them and the outcomes of the, per, uh, impact of percussive therapy on sleep and recovery. Um, so that's a great product that I'm enjoying. Uh, I think a lot of CBD, I mean, but you've got to dial in which one works for your body because not all CBD is the same. Uh, I would probably say 90% of what's out there is junk. It's not full spectrum. It yeah. doesn't really impact you. And then it could work great for me, but not work for you, Scott, and vice versa. Yeah. So we need to dial in what's the CBD that works for you. Yeah. And how much? Cause, uh, and how much? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Yeah. I had a previous guest on who uh, from Pure Spectrum, Brady Bell, mm -hmm. and uh, talking about the different degrees and how much and what's the best starting point and things of that nature. So, um, cool. Well, Elias, again, thank you so much for your time, input and insight. I'm uh, grateful for you taking that time and, and sharing all your knowledge. So, um, grateful. No, I'm grateful for being here, Scott. I really appreciate you and I uh, hope uh, any of the listeners, you know, got something useful out of this. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the conversation with Elias. I believe, I hope you learned a lot and can find ways to use this tool, Biostrap, or any others that we discuss in the episodes on ways to enhance your wellness journey. Also check out episode 30 related to another wearable discussion that we had. And uh, thank you again. If you're interested in the Biostrap, please check out the link in the episode notes and on my website. Uh, for an opportunity to get their new device, the Biostrap Evo. Thank you. Be rested. Be well.